Welcome to the Euro Intelligence Podcast. I'm Wolfgang Munchau and with me are Susanne Munchenk and Jack Smith. Today we want to talk about energy, how to obtain alternative supplies and how to pay for it. The big scandal story or the big story this week was that Russia, Vladimir Putin is demanding we pay for his gas and oil in rubles. That shocked a lot of people and surprised a lot of people. Fair to say that nobody really had that on the radar screen. We took some time to think about it, what it would involve and and why ultimately this isn't possible. But behind all this is, is the much bigger question that we all have to address is, you know, the gas supplies will at one point end, whether this is happening in the medium term or whether we'll actually sanction uh, Russian gas. We haven't done this this week. There's a European Council going on as we speak. The uh, Germans and the Italians are resisting. Olaf Scholz has said there will be no c compromise on this question. I would expect the same too. However, I would assume that at some point the pressure on them will grow or Putin might, you know, pull the trigger. Uh, it, there, there are different ways for these gas flows to stop. They'll certainly stop in the medium term. So we will ultimately have to rethink our entire energy policy. Now, Jack, you've written about alternative sources of gas supplies, LNG and, you know, American purchases, Qatari purchases, you know, where do we stand and what, what are the, you know, what, what can we expect? So, I mean, the, the, fir the first thing, of course, is that national governments and at the European level, they spent an extreme amount of time talking to these kind of representatives. So to the Emir of Qatar, um, to the US president, to various gas importing CEOs. So th there will obviously be kind of a lot of detail and a lot of different moving parts in these pictures. However, kind of from what I understand from the production picture, there's not really much scope to get much more in the short term. I mean, fundamentally, the problem that you're dealing with is that to bring more production online is not something that you can do exactly like instantly or even maybe as qu as quickly as you could with oil. You know, exporting LNG requires building the facilities to export it. That's a process that takes time and is, you know, very capital intensive. So, you know, that's kind of really the issue that you face. And precisely because it's so capital intensive um, and because you tend to need longer term deals to arrange financing for those export facilities, what happens is that it ends up, you know, being tied up and kind of long term contracts. There, there is some LNG that's available on the kind of spot market and some more that's under contract, but that can be kind of redirected. So, you know, whoever's buying it can kind of sell it on um, if the price is right. But then that also means accepting higher prices. You know, it basically kind of means getting into a bidding war with Asia every year and having to outbid kind of especially emerging market suppliers who are maybe less capable of um, paying as much for gas as we are. So in the short term, that's a lot of the picture. I mean, I think one of the things that I really tried to emphasize and then I think is not maybe getting talked about as much as it should is what the medium term picture is. So we've talked, for instance, about 2027 or quote unquote, well before the end of the decade. We talk about going into next winter, but then I think the real question is, you know, in two or three years time, where are we? Where are we? So, you know, where I see a key date being is 2025. That's because we can expect a big amount of production capacity to come online at that point in Qatar. That is the target date for them to finish their enormous Northfield expansion project. That's um, 63 billion cubic meters of currently uncontracted gas that would come online. And that is 
kind of more or less in the same ballpark as what Germany exports. You know, Germany imports, sorry, from Russia each year. So that's that's a lot of gas. You know, you'll also have more opportunities in the U.S. coming online as well around that kind of time frame. So that would be where I'd look at it. I'd also kind of look at it from the political angle because, and, you know, again, this is something I've been saying I think it's very difficult to expect people to just make sacrifices indefinitely. I think you have to have a time, a clear timeline on the horizon when you can say, look, things will be bad now, but they will get better at some point in the kind of foreseeable future. Um, If you don't, I think, have that plan in place, it becomes very difficult to say, expect people to take the kind of energy saving measures that some, you know, stakeholders like the International Energy Agency have been suggesting. Um, There's been a lot of puzzlement as to why governments haven't gone and done that. And I think part of that is because they need to have some way out in place before they can go and, you know, try and sell the public on that. Yeah. I mean, is there a scope for energy rationing? I mean, it does look to me like this isn't going to happen. It's not going to add up. So if we were to uh, forced into saying an oil or gas embargo, which, you know, it could happen pretty much any time. There might be a, some outrage, a chemical attack uh, in Ukraine and the, the public pressure on the Germans and Italian would become unbearable. We would then be in the scenario that you described. We would have to do all these sort of purchases and bid up the prices, but it will probably not be enough to replace the Russian gas, certainly not uh, not uh, in the quantities in the short term. Um How would we ration energy? Would we basically give everyone, uh, would we start with industry? Would we start with homes? Um, you know, would we tell people that they should buy some blankets? Uh, would we ask people to, you know, burn coal? <laughs> or, or what, what do you think is, is, is the way, the way, the way, the way to do this? Um, so, I mean, if you if you have a shortfall of gas, I mean, the first thing is that you try to kind of go through substitution measures. Mm-hmm. So at that point, of course, one item that's been talked about is um, restarting coal-fired power stations that are kind of, you know, currently dormant. Um, obviously, from a climate point of view, that's not exactly ideal. But um, if it comes to keeping the lights on, I guess kind of need, needs be as they must. That would, I assume, prompt a serious, serious rethink in the nuclear debate in Germany. It would also maybe prompt a rethink of the debate in Spain, where they have a longer timescale for nuclear phase-out. Especially Belgium. Belgium has already pushed Mm. their nuclear phase-out back, so that's something that I would expect to see. Yeah, there was a poll out this week in Germany saying that for the first time in like a generation, a majority of Germans were now in favor of keeping those nuclear power stations. Now, I don't believe it until I see it, but it's certainly a shift in view. Yeah, well, I mean, cer- certainly I think that um, something like a um, a chemical weapons attack or large-scale bombardment yeah. would really, really change people's minds. So that that's something that you'd kind of look to try and do first, right? Um, to try and replace the gas that's currently going towards electrical generation. Um, some of the gas that we use, of course, like quite a lot of it actually, is not directly used for electricity generation. It's used directly either in domestic heating or in industrial applications. Um, the next step on energy rationing would then probably be to look at energy intensive industries, you know, so kind of to say, well, within the supply chain, who 
are the particularly heaviest con- con- consumers of gas, you know, taking into account other considerations, things like security of food supply. And then you and then you would go from there on in. Right. I would think that you would prioritize um, domestic heating um, as um, something because it's kind of, you know, for certainly a lot of um, more vulnerable people, a basic human necessity. Mm. I mean, one way of doing this would be to to change the tax policies on gas now to make to reduce taxes for the first contingent of gas that we consume in a year and then to increase the taxes on the higher echelon so that you discourage people from using too much but you encourage people to heat the basic necessity of heating so that you you get a two-tier price level for gas uh, to allow people to stay warm uh, but not too warm yeah and you can also implement things like credits for less kind of well-off consumers of gas or elderly consumers of gas you know of course in 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 you know a lot of countries we already have um, heating subsidies for um, pensioners for the exact reason that they tend to be more vulnerable. I mean, at, at the extreme, of course, you could literally have some sort of um, rationing system. In the UK, um, any of our listeners who grew up in the 1970s will be very familiar with what that looked like and will also be familiar with the fact that that tends to come in for you know industry and commercial applications of energy first. I mean, if we look at the uh, commercial sector and uh, energy intensive use in, in uh, by companies, uh, there are already first uh, steps towards looking of how to help uh, these particular sectors. We've seen in France, they launched a particular uh, program already uh, that sort of helps businesses uh, and agriculture and agriculture and uh, the fishery, for example, <clears throat> to cope with these extra costs uh, that come through this energy energy pricing. Uh, there's also sort of all these um, measures that we put online for the pandemic. There, They have been reinstated. Um, there are, for example, the uh, partial unemployment schemes. France reinstates that. Also, state-backed guarantees are now uh, extended for uh, a much higher amount uh, that companies now have access to. Also in the debate is um, the question of delaying uh, or postponing payments and charges, social charges and taxes. So all these measures that we actually have rehearsed during the pandemic uh, might well come back online and the question is, well, well, in terms of stability and growth pact, we don't won't see that properly applying for next year. Um, also, it will have implications of our state aid. Uh, the commission will have to probably yes, suspend all out of the window now. <laughs> out of the suspend another year, definitely. But yeah, well, so, there's already been a new temporary framework for state yeah. aid that has come out um, this week. I mean, yeah. I don't know how many temporary frameworks we're on yeah, at the yeah. moment. <laughs> the same. It's basically out of the window. The stability pact, the state aid. I think we are basically free, free, free floating here, free swimming. You know, I think the German economics minister did a study on the impact of gas on the industry. And their result was devastating. They said that if we cut the gas, there will be so many companies would have to close down, there'd be mass unemployment. Now, I'm not sure this is true. There was another study done by the by the German government scientific advisory board, the Leopoldina, and they, they, they were more optimistic, uh, both in terms of the in- impact on industry and sort of on GDP in general. But it all depends on how smooth the transition goes. I think if I listen to your scenario about medium-term shifts, 
we are not quite in that scenario. We're not in that sort of best of all worlds type of transition scenarios. We're much more in the scenario where, you know, when it happens, then people will say, oh my God, where are we going to get this gas from? And it's probably not going to happen in time. So we're probably in a more severe scenario where there will be some short term. It all depends on how the, the narratives actually work with the public. I mean, we had this tightening the belts narratives uh, in history several times. Some of them worked, some of them didn't work. Now we come at the, at the end of the pandemic. So people have been used to be in a very uh, extraordinary circumstances, which probably is not comparable to um, tightening the belt economically, but definitely in terms of freedom that we can just walk around and do what we want. Uh, we experience what it looks like in that dimension. Uh, now, when you actually come to heating and necessities, also trigger certain fears for people um, together with the fact that they are already kind of emotionally engaged with this war uh, on Ukraine and the, the fear what it might become uh, that could sort of um, spiral a little bit out of control in the sense uh, in terms of demands of how they want to be protected by the government. Also, the question is, how, where do you draw the red line? Where Who is going to be the one to be supported and who's going to be the one who has to shoulder it by himself? We're talking basically about distributive questions that have to be balanced and answered. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, even in a situation where, um, how would I say, you know, the Russians laid down their arms tomorrow and went home and um, everything was hunky-dory, I think we'd ultimately still at some point or another have to deal with the redistributive question. We're, we're in a scenario um, with kind of, you know, inflation, price rises, also with the kind of long-term effects of the energy transition where and inevitably those will have, you know, unequal impacts on different people at different levels of the income scale. And, you know, in order for the state to kind of maintain, I guess, some level of its basic protective capacities um, for those people yeah, there there will have to be kind of some conversations about income redistribution. Um, that's only my sense of it. Um, another point I'd like to make vis-a-vis kind of mitigating the short-term impacts of this is that a lot also depends on when we start preparing for it. We're probably at a point where now is the best time to start at least thinking about this and preparing for maybe the worst case scenario because the kind of worst effects of this wouldn't happen, you know, right away, right? They would happen through the winter. Um, We have, at the moment, the maximum level of time that we would possibly have to prepare for that six to seven months before before the um, kind of beginning of the next winter heating season. So, you know, if we have to shift our thinking in that direction and start putting policy measures in place or, you know, at least getting the messaging up and running, now is probably the time to do it, right? Let's talk about another subject. Uh, how are we going to pay? Are we all now scratching our rubles out under the mattress <laughs> and decide to put it in? Or Wolfgang, you wrote about it extensively That's and his, you fi- figured out some stuff there. That's uh, a hilarious story about, about Putin. But it also tell, it tells us that, you know, while Putin is... You know, we can't forget, I mean, he when he, st- you know, he studied this kind of stuff and he, you know, his thesis was on raw materials. And one thing they do understand and they're quite good at is is managing a raw materials based economy and understanding also the financial, the financial counterpart of this, this economy. So they, you know, I wouldn't say they're ahead of us on this point, but they certainly caught us unawares uh, with the ruble proposal. Now, the problem for them is this. It's a little technical, but we have sanctioned the central bank. That was the first thing we did. I've been arguing that we should have done the other way around. We should have stopped the flows before we stopped the stocks. So we should have stopped the oil and gas purchases and not sanctioned the central bank. We did the exact opposite. 
And because we did the opposite, he's going to get an awful lot of money in because we're paying him for the gas and oil, but he can't use the money that he has because we sanctioned the central bank and the and all the accounts that it holds, and same for the sovereign wealth fund. So this is a difficulty for him. And so the question is, what does he do with the money that he gets from us? So he gets dollars and euros for for the gas, and uh, normally you would trade it on the market, but you can't. You can't use the market. The central bank is no longer allowed to stabilize the euro, uh, the ruble value. That's why the ruble initially collapsed, mm-hmm. um, because the central bank was a sanctioned entity. Um, so this question became, and then there are certain things one can do. He can take the, the dollars and euros. Um, and he, the first thing he did when the war started, he, he asked the uh, exporters to to uh, they have three days to sell 80% of their foreign income holdings. So this uh, selling means turning them into rubles. So they had to sell the dollars and euros. They didn't sell them on the market that we would have noted that if they had sold these dollars and euros. So what they did, they gave it to this, the, they sold it to the Russian central bank, which has then opened accounts in non-sanctioned entities like Gazprom Bank. Uh, there are other spare bank and other other banks. So they and these banks could have used correspondent banks in China and other countries to um, to kind of launder the money, and and this stuff sort of turns up. But this is not a sustainable. This is not a sustainable sort of uh, environment. So what Putin did cleverly, uh, he's saying he's now saying that this risk. This risk of the of the dollar, he's now trying to roll it over to us. He's basically saying, okay, you you figure this out. How you you pay us in ruble, and you basically get your rubles. Now, how do we get rubles? Uh, if we wanted to get ruble, what what would we have to do? If say a, a German gas importer were to pay him in rubles, what they, they would need to do, they would need to open an account in Russia with uh, Gazprom Bank, typically. And uh, and Gazprom Bank would get those rubles from you know the central bank, from else because the central bank has the ability to print as much as they as, as they want. So and then they would sort of have a legal way to basically deposit the uh, the dollars, and then basically the dollars are kind of officially in the system. That's essentially the way. It's, it is a way for us to kind of circumvent the, the for him. It's, it's a form of money laundering. If you yeah. if you if you think it, it isn't quite the same because you know we are paying him with dollars and euros because we are we are getting his oil, but we're telling him you can't use those good dollars and euros. Now, so it's basically mm-hmm. we are kind of defaulting on him. And this is what, what, what I said in the beginning, the asset price freeze is a hugely problematic thing that they haven't thought through because the only people who decided that were foreign policy types. There wasn't an economist in the room when they made the decision because it is ultimately default. And here we are in the situation paying Russia with dollars and euros for gas and they can't use the dollars and euros. So it's something that this is an unsustainable situation and this is exactly one of the things that will it will it will resolve itself. Now we haven't yet seen I mean all we've seen is Putin's television address. He's sort of saying these things. We haven't seen the small print. And here with this mm-hmm. kind of stuff, the small print is all that matters. There may it may be it may be binary as binary as as it as it appears, or there may be all sorts of exemptions and loopholes. You know, the, the, these kind of things can be and there will also have to be timescales. We don't know about whether this happens now or whether this happens to be within a certain period, whether this happen, applies to 100% of the gas sales or a percentage of the gas sales. So there are a number of things we don't know yet. Mm. But I'm pretty sure that he means it. 
you know, pe- people have been saying, oh, Putin is bluffing. You know, they, these kind of forecasts didn't have such a good uh, track good record. record no. uh, mm-hmm. So Putin does many things. He's not bluffing. He lies, but he doesn't bluff. Uh, so this is a perfect. He doesn't make these announcements and then and then then follow. This is just not in his character. Uh, so that is a per- particularly credible threat, um, putting us under pressure. And we've already seen in Germany there are all sorts of discussion of how to get around the sanctions, etc. So, so it's already had the effect of <laughs> at least splitting some people uh, mm. away from the consensus. Uh, the energy energy people are saying, "Oh, we can do this." Mm. <laughs> so, so you know, they they'll do anything. Uh, Let's say if you look at if you look at energy traders, there's always a way to do something. <laughs> so, so this is the uh, um, so you know, he, uh, splitting the West is sort of part of his game plan, uh, and he he obviously he's good advisor. So, Gerhard Schröder being one mm. of them, who, who probably I don't know whether Schröder came up with this. this he, Schröder is not ten, he doesn't tend to be the a financial wizard. He, you know, yeah, he's more sort of the classic. The classic stuff. It reminds me a little bit of Himalaya Schacht, the central banker of uh, Adolf Hitler, who decided to pay reparations uh, payments in Deutsche Reichsmark. So probably it's out of the rule books from there, or who who knows where Schacht got it from, but it's been in the history books. So if Schröder read the history books, he might have gotten it there, even without being an economics economist. Wait, is he is he still in Moscow? No, he's in Turkey now. He's be, he held a speech yesterday in Turkey in which he uh, made a point which, you know, I think Kissinger and others have, have agreed with. Um, is the, the point is that one of the mistakes we made after the, the collapse of communism is that we failed to create a security structure for Europe that uh, everybody agrees to, but we just did, we expanded NATO, but there was, the, you know, Russia was caught off, caught sort of napping <laughs> that period and then a period of domestic domestic turmoil and uh, weak leadership. And now this is sort of, the situation has now become, become unstable. I, you know, we, one of the things that I did when I was young as a, as a, as a young journalist, I did, I do remember having big disagreements with German uh, diplomats in Washington about this very issue. And I, I remember arguing that the NATO expansion should be treated with more caution. I also argued that that liberalization should be treated with more caution because, because uh, you know, these countries didn't even have, you know, tax collection system, but they were already trying to implement, uh, you know, Milton Friedman style free market economics. Um, I mean, you, you just look at how quickly uh, Hungary had to set up its own stock exchange, right? You know, yeah. and it's just like, you know, this is a, co- a command economy. Co- from which book are you copying this, uh, these rules? Yeah, it was really star- very furious and also probably more liberal in its, in its setup and all more American oriented at the time. I remember yeah. I remember I had a lot of debates with our colleagues from Eastern European countries, and it sounded like they were leapfrogging uh, certain aspects, and we looked like really more communist in uh, certain structures than they did. And they looked in, in, in certain ways much more oriented towards U.S. Um, capitalism than we did, um, and probably also because they had such a uh, clean slate and starting from fresh. Uh, that's what made it all possible. But I agree, we we're still actually lingering on on that um, on that question. Yeah, I know we are basically now seeing the consequences. It's a lot of the things we did uh, back then that have long term consequences that we're now living through, like the creation of the euro. Without the creation of a fiscal union, the creation of you know, German unification had created massive imbalances in the EU. Mm-hmm. Um, one could also say, I mean, you know, I've, I've argued that German unification was a mistake, not the fact of it, but the way it was done. And the kind of the, you know, the enlargement of the nation state as opposed to, uh, you know, there, there could have been a confederal structure and other mm-hmm. structures that could have been chosen at the time that would have been far less damaging to the EU 
and the way Germany, and, and, you know, Germany has a sort of interesting way of of, of using power. It's mm. uh, very much based on its own industrial interests. It has run very large surpluses. And a lot of that went wrong was to do with this, this fact that Germany became such a strong industrial focused powerhouse that was based, that, stri- that felt an, an industrial strategy. It, it used basically currency devaluation, real devalu- devaluation to achieve an, a, an economic advantage. By that, I mean wage cuts relative to other countries. And, you know, just at the time when they fixed the currencies in the euro and all adopted the same currency. So we, we created these massive imbalances domestically, economically and became weak as a union. And now we have to you're fixing it like plaster with recovery funds and all sorts of solidarity mechanisms, but we never solved the problem, which is the fact that we have a, a, a union that is totally lopsided. Italy is basically in it with the wrong exchange rate. So you know, Italy would if this was a normal multi flexible exchange rate mechanism, Italy would probably devalue by forty percent at this point, but it can't, and it's sort of stuck in the, in in a in a, in a in basically the wrong the wrong price wage relationship it cannot you know it cannot recover the lost competitiveness that germany that germany and northern countries have uh, gained there at, at the south south advantage so it's a, the structural adjustment is incredibly difficult and long and long term I was wondering um, if reunification would have happened, the two plus four um, talks, the result of it, if it would have happened dif- differently. And like you said, like a confederation, so instead of taking over in a paternalistic term as a nation expansion, which actually included the NATO, would we not probably have seen the, the fall down of the Warsaw Pact afterwards that followed two years afterwards? Because the problem, the, the, the NATO gave that assurance to uh, uh, extend its reach to eastern Germany only uh, with the two plus four uh, talks. Uh, so I, I don't know, I'm not a historian, I have no idea, but Uh, what happened then afterwards for Russia, where Yeltsin and, uh, and also Putin claimed that this is the, the contested issue that you promised not to enlarge uh, towards the east, and you did. Uh, that came with the, the fall of the Warsaw Pact. Yeah, I mean, the, the four plus two talks were, were quite critical. And during the four plus two, I mean, we've seen documents emerging that during those talks, and it was still Gorbachev at the time, who was still, it was still the Soviet Union that was, that conducted the talks. Insurances were given that NATO would not expand to the east. Now, that was later changed in the 97 uh, treaty with Russia. So there were, there was, there were, there were different insurances given later when Yeltsin was in power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are clearly conflicting, uh, you know, conflicting accounts, and every side is now using the account that is most amenable to its own position. Yeah, I mean, I mean, my understanding is the most charitable explanation to Russia would be that there was some sort of, um, you know, misunderstanding about the implications of the end result of the two plus four agreement. But then, you know, I, you know, don't want to be in a position where that re- remotely excuses what's going on at the moment. No, that's um, not that, that, you know, absolutely. I don't I don't want to I want to make that explicitly clear. Um you know and in any case I think we kind of are where we are now, right? Um no, absolutely. We are we are where we are now. The point is not so much to ex- of course we're not excusing a, a war. The point is that that when this war is over these issues will come up again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, we will have to deal with these issues. And it's not like that we, you know, this is not about excusing. This is about the reality that that Russia is a massive part of Europe, both landmass and uh, 
and uh, lots of people. I mean, Russia has as many people as France and Germany combined. It's about a third of the entire EU. This is a very large, large place. If you add all these various, you know, Belarus, Ukraine, the sort of the the non-NATO part and um, Central Asian republics, this is a very large part of, of, of our world. China is half aligning with Russia. Um, so we have, and in the West, we have agendas that we seem to have forgotten for now, like climate change, and um, that will will require the cooperation of all these countries. Uh, and we have possibly an, um, a long and ongoing war in Ukraine. We wrote about this this morning as a possible scenario of a ten-year, uh, of a you know not a ten-year war, but it's it could be a multi multi-annual. Uh, uh, on and off kind of hot and cold type of type of conflict. So the question of security um, for Europe is going to come up and it's unlikely to be resolved in, in any sort of stable way. Uh, and it's I don't think it's just to do with Putin. So I don't think it's going to be, you know, even if he was replaced and even if he was replaced in a sort of a normal democratic election that was going by sort of normal rules, which the last ones haven't. But if if it were, you know, we're not going to get this kind of, oh, Russia is suddenly on the American side. That's just not going to happen because Russia has very different interests and, very, very, and a very different history and a very different, also very different sources of income and very different alliances. So the so this question uh, this question about the the history of this is, is I think is relevant, uh, but it's not it's not there to say oh we, we agree with Putin of course we don't I mean we, we, we don't, but the point is the point is that that you know we predicted at the time that instability would ensue as a result of this uh, as a result of NATO and, uh, expansion and what happened instability ensued uh, you know we're not blaming anyone in particular but we're saying that there would have been a moment in the in this period to create a stable uh, situation. And we created one that was not stable. And it is not stable because of the situation we are in at the moment. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, def- definitely there were there were things there were things that um, there were there were things that could have happened differently. And, and of course, m- most recently, I think, you know, um, the biggest thing, as is now becoming immediately obvious, is the way that we approached um, energy policy naive at best, um, you know, just um, incredibly incredibly foolhardy at, at worst and you know i mean one one thing i'm i'm not really sure that is fully sunk in yet is how much is probably going to have to change in the way that we think about various different aspects of our kind of you know i guess collective european society as a result of this it it still kind of feels like we're at the point maybe of of tinkering a bit on the margins and the kind of, I, I guess it takes a while for the full reality of these kinds of things to set in, but I'm not really sure that we're kind of there yet. No. Yeah. I think the Europeans are, I mean, <laughs> Europeans are uh, not, you know, they left strategic thinking to others and uh, including to people who are not thinking strategically like the Americans who haven't think, been thinking strategically for a long time about these matters. Um, uh, we've been sort of getting very naively into things like European army and European defense without realizing what it is and p- without realizing how we want to use these uh, our army. 
um, we we uh, we expand NATO to the east, but then again we depend we depend we make ourselves dependent on Russian gas. Uh, um, we have a very model strategy to China um, with different with so many different objectives that that are very hard to square. So you know this is poss- possibly um, I don't think it's going to be a wake up call for the Europeans. I, I'm I'm much more. These idea. are dilemmas that we have to sort out. I mean these are moral dilemmas, and moral dilemmas sometimes actually are a good wake up call in the sense that it actually points to the choices that we have to make and there is no kind of first first choice yeah it's but we just have to find a way of the least harmful one forward uh, and and that that requires that we actually at least clear about the choices we have like you said it's energy we, we have to think about our energy our own dependencies uh, well we didn't call these in, in dependencies before before it was interdependence or, or sort of inter, interchange and we talked about trade and now it becomes a dependence so how far are we, are we going to go to argue oh we have to become autonomous of all these things first of all it's quite uh, illusional to think that we can completely become autonomous there will be always uh, things down the supply chain that we need from other countries but uh, there are so many degrees that we have to sort of decide or make our minds up on and uh, this will be the way forward yeah i mean i definitely agree that it's an illusion to think that we can become you know autonomous or kind of i guess in the precise economic term autarkic I mean, another thing that I've kind of been saying increasingly over the past week is that um, one of the kind of medium term shifts in our in European energy policy that will happen is it will actually become kind of more globalized rather than less. Because, you know, when you start to basically become more reliant on liquefied natural gas, you're more kind of, I guess, exposed, you could say, to um, a variety of different global market factors. You know, it's different if you're buying a lot of your gas from Russia, a lot of that's on long-term contracts and so on and so forth, right? Um, Versus, you know, um, you could be buying, especially if you're buying on, say, like the spot market or something like that, um, you know, gas that could um, be diverted, you know, from one place to another, um, you know, the price of whatever you're paying or how secure its supply is could depend on something that's literally going on on the other side of the world. Um, you know, you're dealing, the, e- the EU's individual countries are relatively small importers of nat- liquefied natural gas compared to the big beasts in the market, which are China, Japan and Korea. There will be all those kind of factors. I think one thing that's very important, though, is to be very clear about when it's dependence or when it's interdependence, right? And that means being able to properly appraise whoever your partner is in this situation. I think what's important is, you know, we're never going to be kind of autonomous, but we at least have to have some degree of confidence that we can understand the decision-making process and rationale of whoever we're kind of entering into this with. Because for me, that's the difference between interdependence and independence is, you know, do we understand what they're trying to get out of this? Do we really think that they rely on us as much as we rely on them? How certain can we be about that? And that, I think, is what is important, you know, going forward, whether we're dealing with Qatar, um, whether we're dealing with the Americans, whether we're trying to sort things out with Japan, whoever it is, right? I mean, we are we are dependent, obviously, on on unlike America and unlike China, we we are dependent on on raw materials. The Europe is not raw material rich, and the big but the biggest weakness we have is that we are a decentralized uh, group. We always meet in European councils, and decentralized people don't have strategies. Decentralized groups fix things 
they put plaster on, on, on wounds, but they never, they never think strategically. Uh, I cannot think of anything we've done in the last 20 years that, that, that would qualify to be strategic. Um, the way we fixed the Eurozone went from one day to the next. The, uh, we tried the, the, the Lisbon agenda in the early 2000s. It was a misguided strategy and it collapsed because they didn't have an enforcement mechanism. And ever since it's been announcements, press releases, short-term initiative like the European Commission's vaccine procurement thing, but without without it becoming a proper strategically treaty-based uh, legal thing that we de- that the EU should do. I mean, there's a clearly a case to say pandemics is EU business. Now, in Germany, pandemics is not even national government business. In Germany, it's it's all it's all state business. Uh, there are certain things that need to change on the, on the level of the treaty, and much of the European policy establishment is very much in denial of it. What they're trying to do now is to try to forge European integration through rule of law mechanisms, through uh, through soft soft integration, as opposed to further 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 other things so it's um, that 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 is ultimately i think why why it's going to be very very difficult for us yeah and i i would say certainly i think in in the case of energy though uh, you know that the extent to which that strategy does or does not emerge could actually be quite important because you know uh, in 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 the EU, there's a fairly kind of integrated energy market. Obviously, you know a lot of the infrastructure is interconnected, and then so is the kind of the pricing, um, especially in terms of how how the mechanisms all work. Everybody has to use the same pricing model because that's literally set down in the legislation. So you know there, I think there will need to be more of a kind of unified strategic imperative, simply because it's it's all it's also just like interconnected in terms of how the market works. And if you don't have that kind of like focus, then um, I'm not sure whether you'll get to a more sustainable situation where that's concerned. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of things we have to do, right? <laughs> and hopefully this will be for us really an opportunity to look into that. And then, as you said, really be much more cautious in in, in terms of whom we enter in business with. Uh, and I mean, there are some uh, some guidance now out there. We used to integrate on our, our humanitarian uh, human rights uh, aspects in our ways, how we look at what we're going to have in our single markets, uh, or at least uh, in terms of import, whether or not and how far we're going to go, I don't know. Uh, but at least there is um, there's an aspiration to consider not only the product itself, but actually who's selling it to us. And uh, in that sense, I see this as a positive sign and we sort of more of a holistic way of doing business with the world. So we'll see how far this goes when it comes to energy and when it comes to actually making hard choices, whether or not we're going to have a cold winter or whether we have to buy some jumpers uh, for next time and uh, how ready we are for sacrifices. And I think I think we are done for now and for this week. Thank you for listening and we hope to be with you next week. <laughs>